Well, turn with me in the Word of God to the epistle of 1 John. This evening we are taking back up our series in 1 John. We've been on a break for a few weeks because of pulpit supply and then, of course, Easter last Sunday uh, evening. But we are back in the book of 1 John in chapter 2. And this evening we will read from chapter 2, verse 18, down through 27. 1 John chapter 2, and starting in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. That what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you, uh, to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as he has taught you, abide in him. This is the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to us this evening. Let's go to him and ask for his aid in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this section in John's epistle that your Holy Spirit inspired the apostle to write almost 2,000 years ago now. We pray that he would be with us and illumine us to understand in our things that we need to see in this text, that we would be wary of Antichrist and that we would look to the true Christ, to our Lord and Savior Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we get back into 1 John, we get back into the things that John is warning his uh, readers about. We remember, of course, that he was writing to a group, probably a group of churches in Asia Minor, or what we now call Turkey, who were dealing with a series of problems that had come to them. Apparently some false teachers had come into the church and had begun to lead people astray, that there were people who had been, they thought, a part of Christ's true church, part of the congregation with them, learning and growing and worshiping God who had now left. And as these people had left, they had left quite a wake of destruction behind them. And so John is trying to remind his listeners of the things that they know, of the things that are important, the things that they needed to hear. And we can probably honestly say today, can't we, that in the midst of all the busyness, in the midst of all the confusion that's around us, and we could list any number of things that are busy and confusing around us today, sometimes we just need to be uh, taking a moment and remembering the basics. We need to be reminded of the things that are foundational, the things that make sure everything else can stay in its place. That's what we have here in this section in 1 John 2. John likes to remind his readers of these things, of course. We've mentioned again and again how cyclical 1 John tends to be. That he'll say one thing, and then next thing you know, he's on to something else, and then he's back to that thing again maybe a chapter later. But you begin to see as you read through this epistle, as you see it from beginning to end, that there's a method here. It's not just madness. 
that John is trying to remind us. He's trying to remind all those who listen of what we know, of what we love, and of how we should act as a result of what we know and what we love. And that's what he's going to do this evening. So we'll see three headings this evening as we come to them each in turn. But the first one is Antichrist. And I'm guessing if you're like me, when you read through or heard that passage read through the first time, that's the word that got your attention. I grew up in a very non-reformed home and church life situation, and we were very concerned with things about the end times. We were very concerned about when uh, the tribulation was going to come, what about Christ's second coming, who the Antichrist as a significant figure on world history was going to be, all these sorts of things. It was consuming for us. And unfortunately, it was so consuming that we maybe couldn't tell you exactly what it meant to be justified by faith alone, but we could give you a big old chart about Revelation in the end times. It wasn't necessarily a good thing for us. And so I read this passage and I hear Antichrist. You don't read that in Scripture very often. In fact, the only time that the, phrase, that the word Antichrist is used is in First and Second John. In the entire New Testament, that's the only time we find this phrase used. And it's not used in the way that perhaps I would have thought it would be used 10 or 15 years ago when I was in a different tradition. It's not necessarily used about a specific figure who's coming at the end, who's going to rule and to reign and to do all these terrible things. But instead we find here in verse 18 of chapter 2, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. And that's how John starts this section on Antichrist, or Antichrist, plural, as he would have it. He begins by calling these people children again. We've seen that again and again, haven't we? That he, as an elder, uh, in every sense of the word, uh, coming to the end of his life, probably close to 90 years old at this point, is writing to this congregation. He is a spiritual father to them. He is a pastor to them. He has a great deal at stake here because these are his spiritual children. And he writes to them and reminds them of that fact that he is not only authoritative over them, but that he deeply cares for them. This is a term of comfort. This is a term that you use when you're trying to comfort someone and to remind them of what your feelings for them actually are. And we can ask, well, why does he need to say this? Why does he need to repeat this? Well, he's about to tell them some very shocking things, some very jarring things about people that they knew and people that they presumably still loved. People who had walked away from the church uh, in recent days, it seems like, when John is writing 1 John. And he says, this is the last hour. We can ask exactly what that hour means. It seems that when you read John's writings, whether the Gospel of John or the three uh, letters of John or the book of Revelation, that there are really three hours that John focuses on. The first one is the idea of Jesus uh, coming to earth for his hour, for the hour, the hour when he is crucified and killed and would soon rise again when he would accomplish redemption for his people. But then we see another hour, an hour that came to us really at Pentecost, when it's the hour that the Holy Spirit would come upon his people in power, particularly the apostles, and really show them what the gospel actually was and how it should affect them in their lives, and that the the Holy Spirit would enable them to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And then we come to this, this, the third hour, the last hour, as John would have it, the final hour. And when John uses this sort of terminology, what he's talking about is the very end. 
He's talking about that end day when Christ returns, when things are made new, when there are no more tears or pain or crying anymore for the former things have passed away. That's what he gets at here in the last hour, but he uses it in a strange way here. He says, we are in the last hour. Now, if you're like me and you grew up trying to create different charts for the end times, you begin to think, well, how can we be in the last hour? Christ hasn't, uh, or the Antichrist hasn't come, the tribulation hasn't begun, all these different things. That's not really how the New Testament looks at these sorts of things. What we find in the New Testament is that we are in the last times, we are in the last days in between Christ's first and second coming. And so with his death and resurrection, his ascension to heaven, The end times kicked off, and that's how the New Testament writers consider these things. And John is saying, we know we're in the last hour, and how do we know? Because many antichrists have come, he says. For John, antichrist is a present reality, even 2,000 years ago. It was a present reality in the midst of these churches. It was a present reality in the lives of these believers in the first century in Turkey. And his readers, he knew, were tempted to think that these false teachers, these antichrists, were onto something. Notice what he said in verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. You see, it seems that word has reached John's ears that it's not just that these people are believing the wrong things and leaving the church behind and causing pain and suffering there, but they're actually trying to convert, as it were, those who are truly believers to their way of thinking, to their way of seeing things. They're trying to drag people alongside behind them and after them. And John is concerned to make sure that these people, these precious believers, these children, as he calls them, are not going to be deceived. They are not going to be led astray. They are not going to think that these false teachers truly were on to something. And so the last hour, many antichrists, these many antichrists are the opposites of how John began his letter. I know it was months ago, and there's a lot that's happened between now and then. But turn with me to the first verse of the first chapter of 1 John and remember with me how John began this letter because there's a reason he did so. 1 John 1 and verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So John begins that way for a very specific reason. He knows there are antichrists coming, saying wrong things about Jesus, trying to lead astray these people, these children whom he loves. And he wants to remind them right from the bats, hey, you remember me? I'm an apostle. I spent three years with Jesus during his earthly ministry. I saw Jesus. I heard Jesus. I touched Jesus. I was there when he was crucified. I was there after he rose again. I saw him ascending to heaven. So why are you listening to these antichrists? Why are you tempted to think that what they're going to tell you is more legitimate, is more than what I can possibly tell you? Because I'm the one who is there and I'm the one who has been given the authority by Jesus Christ to proclaim who he is and what he's done. And so we can ask, okay, this is what the Antichrists are doing. They're basically becoming anti-apostles in this sense. But we can ask, what exactly does Antichrist mean? Boys and girls, perhaps you've heard that term thrown around, but you've never really heard a good definition of it. And the fact of the matter is, there isn't necessarily an ironclad definition of it. 
Some would say that it's someone who is an opponent of Christ. Some would say it's someone who is trying to be a replacement of Christ. But really, if you think about it, they're basically the same thing, aren't they? To oppose Christ is to attempt to replace him, and to replace him is certainly to oppose him. That is what these antichrists were trying to do. They're trying to lead God's people astray, if they could, from looking at the actual Messiah, the actual Christ that God has come, that has come from God and has spoken. And so we've seen, as we've gone through these first two chapters of 1 John, some of the claims that these antichrists were making. They claimed that they had fellowship with God. They claimed that they had not committed sin. They claimed that they had been living in God and that they were walking in the light. And John has already said again and again and again and proven in various ways that these things were not so. That this is not how these things actually were. And what he's saying here in our text this evening is that what these antichrists are doing is denying what God affirmed when he raised Jesus from the dead. So last Lord's Day we celebrated, we considered the fact, the glorious fact of the resurrection of our Savior. And we know that there are very many things that happened in the resurrection and as a result of the resurrection, and we could have an entire sermon series just around the fact of the fact of the reality that Christ rose from the dead, that we will rise in him, and that he has earned all these things for us, that God has rewarded him in the resurrection. But one of the central things that happens in the resurrection is God affirms this is who he said he was. Because you know Jesus comes and he says all these wonderful and sometimes wild claims about being God and being the one who David looked forward to, being there when Abraham was, I am, he says. And we know that there are many people who make all sorts of outlandish claims today. It's even easier for us to find them because we have the internet, something that they had not yet been cursed with at that time. But I have to tell you, if someone made these claims and then was killed unjustly and three days later rose from the dead as he said he did, it's going to start getting some attention. God proclaimed that this Jesus is the Christ and the Antichrists were denying this. They were denying what God himself has proclaimed. And so what is God calling us to do through this as we just begin to see what these Antichrists were and what they were doing and what the temptations were for John's readers Well, God is calling us to something very specific. And it may not be as obvious at first. But he's calling us to not spend all of our time focusing on perhaps one Antichrist, who I believe will rise at the end. But instead, to make sure we're remembering to look out for the Antichrists within the people who claim to be of God. Because remember, these people didn't start outside the church as we see it. They didn't start outside the visible community of God. These people began alongside these readers who are reading this from John's own hand. And the readers had no reason to think that these people were not a part of them, and yet they left, they departed, and they denied that Christ has even come in the flesh, as we're about to see. It's a reminder to us to always be aware of what people are saying and teaching to us, to not be thrown off the trail, as it were, of the true Christ by those who may deny him. And we see these antichrists were lying and leaving. Notice again in verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not, they all are not of us. Now that's one of those 
uh, sentences that sometimes in the translation from Greek to English isn't as clear as perhaps it could be. Uh, as we read it, it's not perhaps the way that we would talk if we were just creating a sentence in this way in English. But really when we get to it, we see that it's quite simple. They had left and it had created heartache and doubt. And people were wondering, as you would be, if suddenly a group of people, and God forbid, but if suddenly a group of people were to leave Phoenix URC and claim all these things that they believed for so long were a lie that they no longer believe them and they were to go apart from us, they were to separate from us, of course it would lead to heartache and wondering and some doubts among us. It would lead to us wondering what's going on. Can we be confident? How can we know exactly what it is? Are these people actually saved and falling away that they are no longer in God's good grace, even though they were before? Or what exactly is happening, happening here? Well, we see in verse 19, once you actually break it down, it's surprisingly basic. It's surprisingly straightforward what John is saying here. He is saying, especially in light of what he said in these first two chapters so far, that they went out from the church because they loved the world more. That they went out from the church because they loved the world more than they loved or proclaimed, professed to love their Savior. In fact, it seems that the reason, as John is writing this, the reason that they left is so it could be known that they were not of us. There's this causal idea here that's at play. And so they are lying to the people of God and they are leaving. And those are the two marks of Antichrist as John would have it. And so we can ask, okay, if this is what Antichrists are and were and will be, what are we to do? Because we know this is not limited to a first century problem, is it? And if we're in churches, this church or another church for very long, we know that we have come across things that are quite hard, even in the life of the church, that we have seen people walk away, we have seen people deny the faith, we have seen false teachers arise, perhaps not in this local congregation, but in some of the circles in which we run. And is that going to be the fate of us? Is that going to be what happens to us? Is there really no hope, or is there something that we should consider and think about? Well, it comes to our second point this evening, and that is the word abiding. Notice with me verse 21. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. He's writing to them because they know the truth. We could say that we ourselves, who have been in this congregation, also know the truth. We have heard it proclaimed from God's own word. And so what John is doing here is he's not trying to teach them something new. He's not trying to bring them something new that will wow them afresh and really get their attention in that way. He is shepherding by reminder here. A very important concept. And how often do we need to be reminded? I think we could all speak for ourselves in this instance and talk about times where we need to be reminded of who God was and what what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. Because it's not that we didn't know it, it's not that we haven't heard it, but in that moment, at that time, we need to be reminded of these great and glorious facts, of this wonderful comfort that we have. And so what John is doing here is he's doing the opposite of what the Antichrists were doing. The Antichrists were saying, we have something new for you, we have something better for you. John is saying, no, what I'm bringing to you is the old thing. I'm bringing to you what you already know. I'm bringing to you what you should remember because there is nothing better than it. And I want you to abide, essentially to remain, to be satisfied with this. 
He's telling them essentially at this point not to look elsewhere. Not to look elsewhere. And we recognize in ourselves temptations to look elsewhere, don't we? Temptations to think, oh, well, maybe I need a little bit of this over here. Or I need something extra that I just really haven't received from God. Or I need something, Jesus plus something, whether that's good works or whatever it might be that you could fill in the blank. That we are tempted in these directions. That John knew his readers were tempted in these directions. That the Antichrist had succumbed to the temptation in these directions. And what he's telling his readers, what God through him is telling you right this very moment, is that you don't need something new. That you know these things. That you have heard these things. These things have come into your ears, and if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, they have come into your heart by the the, uh, magisterial working of the Holy Spirit. He has moved powerfully in you. That he will keep you and he will bring these things to remembrance in you. So what John is telling us is you need to abide in the Jesus that you already know. You don't need to look elsewhere. As tempting, as attractive as other things may be, you need to abide in the Jesus that you already know. And why? Because that way you have the Father and the Son. What does he say in verse 24? Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, and if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. We will have the Son and the Father. That's the result of this abiding, of the Word abiding in us, of what we've heard abiding in us, and we will then abide in the Father and in the Son. That we will have this wonderful relationship with God. So what John is saying in not so many words is, the Antichrist cannot offer anything as good as God. I mean, we need to think about that for just a moment. The Antichrist cannot offer anything as good as God. What had Jesus sent the apostles with? The message of the gospel. The message that the light is already shining, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And these wonderful blessings that flow from that to his people. The fact that there is reconciliation between God and man because of the God-man Jesus Christ. And all these wonderful things that God is bringing us into a relationship with him that is going to fulfill what he created us for. And the Antichrists are coming along and saying, well, we have something better. John's saying, no. There is nothing better than that which we were created for, than the greatest good, than God himself, and we have a relationship with him if we hold to Jesus Christ. If the word abides in us, we will abide in the Father and the Son. That we have blessings, we have an inheritance. We have this relationship with the one who created us and the one who sustains us and the one who redeemed us. And what more do you need than that? What more could you ask for than what you have already received? John is essentially asking us. Because this is sufficient, this is trustworthy, and this is enough. And not only do we abide in the Father and the Son, but in doing so, as we read in verse 25, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life, that we abide in eternal life. This is the God's promise to us, never-ending blessedness, a relation with him forever, him being our God, us being his people, us seeing him in the face of Jesus Christ forever. That is what they already knew. And brothers and sisters, that is what we already know. 
That is what we have heard from this pulpit week in and week out for years and years for some of us, for months and months for others of us. But it's something that we know. And we're called to trust in this. That this is something that the Antichrist could not offer. That no other religion in the world can offer to us. That we can find nowhere else as hard as we look, as much as we try to find the next best thing and the most attractive thing that comes to our eyes and to our ears. God has promised us a relationship with him and eternal life and eternal blessedness. So what John is saying here is remember, these Antichrists will overpromise and underdeliver. They will overpromise and underdeliver. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of ordering something online that seemed great. And of course, online all things seem great, don't they? I remember when I was, oh, I'd like to say I was 17, but I was probably a little older, as embarrassing as that is. And I was on Amazon and I thought, this looks like a wonderful thing. I could buy this with you know, my debit card. Oh, things are really getting going now. And it comes to me, and the wonderful craftsmanship that appeared to be online was basically just cardboard. And I realized this is not what it was that I was promised, that I was over-promised and they were under-delivering to me. That's what the Antichrists are doing. They are promising something better, something greater, something you need in addition to Christ or in place of Christ, and they're giving you cheap cardboard that breaks the first time you use it. John is reminding his audience, he's reminding us of this fact. And he's telling us, you have been saved. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ, you have been saved and you are being kept. What makes you think you need more for the future? What makes you think that the Lord will not give you everything you need from this point forward? So this is our second point, our second heading, abiding. And finally, we see a final A word, anointing. We see anointing as it's brought up here in this uh, part of the epistle. And we can ask, where does this confidence come from? As we read in verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Now, the Holy One is a reference that we aren't entirely sure about. It could mean the Father specifically. It could mean the Son specifically. But really, as you read what John is saying here, it doesn't matter which one it is. Because if you have the Father, you have the Son. If you have the Son, you have the Father. They work together alongside the Holy Spirit. And so this is something that comes to us from God. And that's where our confidence comes from. That's where the anointing comes from. And it's better to read this uh, passage in, at the end of chapter uh, 2, verse 20. And you, instead of, and you all have knowledge, and to read it as, and you have all knowledge. So what's John's point there? Well, they don't need anything from the Antichrist. They have all knowledge. They have all that they need. It's sufficient for them. It's sufficient for us that God has given us what we need, that he knows better than us, and there's nothing that he has left out, even when we're tempted to think that he has. We can ask at this point, can't we, what exactly is anointing? We often don't use that phrase, that term, in our day-to-day conversations nowadays. What exactly is it that John is saying? Well, in the Old Testament, if you'll remember, as you read through the Old Testament, there were certain things that were set apart to God as holy, set apart for his special use. And often they would use oil and apply it to people or to things set apart for God. So we think of kings or priests or altars or the tabernacle and temple itself set apart to the Lord by use 
of having this oil poured upon it. You were anointed with oil, and that meant that you were set apart for God, that you were his. We can ask, what's the anointing here that we have been given? Is John saying that you have all had oil poured on your heads? Well, no. He's saying you have what these Old Testament anointings are pointing to. You have had the Holy Spirit poured out upon you from the Father and the Son. And again, what more can you need? Think about that, Christian. You have the Holy Spirit. And what is someone going to come and tell you, I have more than that? No. What more do you need? What more could you want? That's what John is reminding his audience here. He's reminding us, you have the Holy Spirit. And just because some have have departed does not mean that you have not been anointed with the Spirit. What he's calling them to do here is to remember what they know, to remember the fact that they have been anointed and to trust in Jesus Christ. It's the same thing he's calling us to do here 2,000 years later on the other side of the planet, speaking a different language, but dealing with many of the same problems. He's calling us to trust in Jesus. To trust in the one who gives us all of these wonderful blessings because of what he has done for us in our place. And he's telling us not to look elsewhere. Not to look for anyone or anything else. I don't know how many people here have cats. My sister has a cat named Cinnamon. And Cinnamon was a rescue. When she was about two years old, uh, they found her and put her in uh, a place in Michigan. And my sister went and picked her out. And basically the cat Cinnamon came and really picked my sister more than vice versa. And she took her home. And pretty soon it became obvious that Cinnamon had what we sometimes call online FOMO which means the fear of missing out. Now, we don't know exactly how she got to be this way, but as soon as you closed her in a door and we were trying to keep her, you know, set apart in these separate rooms so she could get used to the place where she was, and next thing you know, you hear the banging coming from down the hallway. Cinnamon wants out. Cinnamon isn't having it. Cinnamon wants to be where the action is because she has the fear of missing out. And then, of course, you got to be used to uh, getting out and to having kind of the run of the upstairs And, of course, what happens when you're in the bathroom and you close the door? Under comes the paw. And in comes the anguish meows. Because Cinnamon has the fear of missing out. But in a more serious note, don't we all have the fear of missing out spiritually? We have the fear of missing out on something that could be better than what we have, of someone who could come and say to us, this is better, this is more attractive, this is what you really need, and we have this fear, oh no, what if I miss out on that? What John is telling us is you don't have to look elsewhere because you are not missing out. You already have all the things that you need. You have received everything that you could possibly want. And we don't know everything. We don't have each and every single thing that we perhaps desire. But we do have and we do know enough to have confidence in our Savior. And so as antichrists are continuing to rise, even as they have for 2,000 years, and trying to lead the people of God astray and are leaving the visible community of God's people, what are we to do? Well, you're supposed to remember what you've heard from the beginning, from the reliable witnesses of the apostles. You're supposed to remember your anointing with the Holy Spirit, and what more could you possibly need than that? You are to recognize the fact that there are antichrists who are attempting to lead you astray and you are to sift their words carefully. And ultimately, 
you are to let the word abide in you. And in doing so, you are to abide in Jesus. To trust in him. To throw yourself on his mercy and grace. And to know that only in him do we receive all the things that we could ever hope to want or need. And so as antichrists come, don't let them draw you astray. As John tells us in 2 John 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Brothers and sisters, don't be deceived. Don't let someone come and tell you something other than what you've heard. But rest in Christ. Trust in him and find him where he has promised to reveal himself in his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this reminder that we so often need, even week by week, we need to remember the fact of of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, of the fact that we are not missing out from any blessings, but that you, through him, will give us all things. You have not spared your only begotten Son for us. We ask, Lord, that you would remind us of these things by your Holy Spirit to give us confidence to go about not only our weeks but the rest of our Christian lives to realize that we have the anointing of the Holy Spirit, that we have a Savior who has given us everything, and that we need to look nowhere else for any of these things. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.